that being said, turn your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be. It's one of the first of two texts that we'll look at for the rest of the day, okay? And so um, I'm going to start off as you're turning there. I'm going to read to you guys a story. Um, it is kind of breaking down an interview that happened between Simon Sinek, if you're familiar with him. He's kind of a cultural sociologist. He's a blogger, an author, um, looks at current trends. And, you know, in this world, it's if you get followers, you can say stuff, but he actually says really good stuff. And so he interviewed former United States Marine Corps General George Flynn uh, about their leadership structure and some things they do there. I want to use that as, as we start off. And so um, let me read this to you. It says, Cynic asked Flynn if he could summarize what made the Marine Corps leadership style so unique. Flynn's response was quite simple. It was because, quotes, officers eat last. This fundamental, intentional concept explains what makes Marine Corps so extraordinarily tight-knit, to the point that they are willingly to trust their lives with one another every day. In every chow hall across the globe, Marines line up for their food each day, and the most junior-ranking Marine eats first. Their leaders eat last. Such procedures are not recorded in the Marine Corps handbook or procedural code, nor are they communicated at roll call. It's just the way that Marine leadership teaches responsibility. Many people think leadership to be about rank, power, and privilege. Marines, however, maintain that true leadership is the willingness to place others' needs before your own. Okay? Um, I'm from San Diego. That's where I went to college. And so if you live in San Diego, there is a, a heavy Marine Corps contingent uh, all across kind of Southern California, specifically in San Diego, Camp Pendleton's out that way. Uh, and if you talk to these guys, like, man, they are united. Like, they have a deep, deep affection for their brotherhood, right? Uh, and, and that's just the way that they function. They lay down life for one another. And so the more you read about this stuff, it is rather fascinating. And a lot of the culture now is beginning to see uh, some of the ways that the Marine Corps and some other places as well are beginning to do leadership a little bit different, a little bit different, uh, let's say upside down from the way culture has traditionally done it. And there's all this praise, and hear me, rightfully so, I think that's great. But the reality is, is that the Marines didn't come up with this, right? Like this, this is Jesus. Like Jesus Jesus, this is him showing the world the way leadership is best done. And that's what we've seen over the last 12 weeks in this series we've been preaching called Love Walk Among Us, as we've been looking at the life of Jesus as he just walks through the Gospels and does things a bit differently. Now, there's this one significant difference that I think we must highlight between this amazing leadership model uh, that the Marine Corps employs, right, to, to disciple, if you will, or lead and, and transform their ranks um, that's different from the church. And it's, it's really, it's this main marked difference um, is that generally, right, this, um, this calling to let others be first, or rather let me put myself at the back of the line, that line is drawn within their own crew, within their own camp and within their own tribe, right? And so it's, it's core first, right? But then, listen, they serve the country, and so they're united with us in that as well and as Americans. Um, but then there is the enemy, right? And, and there's not a call, and that makes sense. This isn't even me judging them to say they should be this way. They are not the kingdom of God. Let's not get this confused, right? But the calling of the church is, hey, you get to the back of the line for everyone, that the tribe mentality, that doesn't exist for us. You understand? Like the calling of Jesus is, I'll be the last behind 
everybody. And so you notice that it's, it's slight in wording, but it's a significant difference that when we go and we love, our love is for all in every context. We intentionally descend that everyone else might be lifted up. This is the purpose of the church. So let's jump into uh, these two texts, Luke 22, we're going to be in John 13. And for me, this is one of, it's probably my, like after the cross, I think it's the most influential passage of being able to look at Christ and shape my life, uh, or at least a desire to shape my life. And I hope that's true for us as well. So Luke 22, we'll start in verse 24, and there will be dialogue and Q&A and all that stuff where I want you to answer. I'm going to be honest, the 9 a.m. service, it was way more people, but they didn't answer anything. So you guys now have the opportunity in like a third the size to be at least three times as better. So that's not, like you'd be nine times better than them if I did my math right. Okay, so um, turn Luke 22, verse 24, starts off this way. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. Now here's the context for this first verse and for our first story. It's Passover, a celebration of the time where God came in and intervened to deliver and save the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Okay, this is, this is the context of this. So they're having dinner together. It's Jesus and his 12 closest buddies called the apostles. And they've been following Jesus for three years now. So it's not like this is the first time they're going to hear, we're supposed to sacrifice, we're supposed to be less, so we're supposed to die to self. But they come to the dinner table and this uh, discussion uh, breaks out about who is the greatest apostle. Can you imagine this situation? Like I was trying to picture this. If at a staff meeting for our church, if Anthony and Andy and Johnny, the worship, if Johnny just picked up like a drumstick, started throwing it and stabbing people just so he gets the best seat in the house. Like this, this argument erupts amongst guys who've been walking with Jesus about who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. The backdrop of this is simple. These guys thought Jesus was a revolutionary army like leader, right? That he was going to come in overthrow the Roman government, and the people that would be sitting on top in control would be the Jews. Jesus would be their king, and so what they're vying for here is a position in the administration. Like, who gets to be the secretary of defense, right? Who gets to oversee these different parts of the kingdom, okay? So when they come to dinner, this is all the context that is leading them into this moment that leads to this bickering. Now, I want to show you guys, if you can, Asher, you can pull up the picture of the table. This is um, a guess, right? But it's an educated guess based on the scriptures of what the dinner table might have looked like at the Last Supper. What we know is Jesus as the rabbi would have sat in the center, okay? And so people would have sat around him. He would have been able to speak to everyone. Everyone could hear what he had to say. You notice the H and the F. The H stands for head. The F stands for feet because feet just in general, are disgusting. And so you keep those away from the table and you lean in, head forward on your shoulder to be able to talk and enjoy your food. Now, we see Peter, bottom right. Now, what we know is that Peter had to have been sitting pretty far away from Jesus, which is a surprise because Jesus was already kind of tasked with being the leader of the future church. So Peter's over here and we know that he's there because we see later on in John that Peter had to talk to John so that he can get a word to Jesus, right? So Peter was not close enough to Jesus to be able to talk to him. He had to say, hey, John, 
Tell this to Jesus. And then John told it to Jesus, right? And so then you get this next uh, clue is that John has said that he was literally leaning up against Jesus also in the book of John. And so we know Jesus, or John was sitting right to the right of Christ, and then probably to the left was Judas, okay? Which is a surprise if you know who Judas is a little bit, that he'd be placed right next to Jesus at the Last Supper in a place of honor. Now, contextually, if you sat to the left of someone at a meal like this, you were being given the greatest honor sitting to the left of the rabbi. If you sat to the right, you'd be given the second most honor. And then the farther away you were from the rabbi, the least amount of honor you were being given at the dinner table. So now you can kind of begin to think about, well, what's going on in this scene then is probably what happened was they all got to dinner and everyone wanted those seats next to Jesus. Because when you have access to the rabbi, it means you have power. Because access equals power. You're able to have the ear of the king, right? And so they all wanted that chair. So you kind of get this picture of Peter thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to be the cornerstone of this thing. So surely I belong at the left, not Judas, right? Um, and so instead he goes to sit down. You know those awkward situations where, you, like, fellas, like both of you before, I don't know how many of you were married in here, but I know back in the day when I was courting and wooing Verity, um, there was another dude that was courting and wooing Verity, and we both knew it. Right? And so Verity was at this Mexican restaurant, and we both kind of like eyed each other, and we didn't want to make a big deal of it, but I sprinted and sat next to the left of her, right? And so, um, and it worked because he lost and I won. And so um, you can imagine Peter's like, well, I'm going to sit there. That's where the honor table, that's like where the honor seat is. And then Judas somehow slipped in instead. So, kind of knowing, impetuous, and kind of petulant and whiny Peter, you kind of get this idea. He's like, fine, I'll go sit over here. And he goes to the corner of the table and just sits down. He said, I like the corner. It's fine. I don't, want to, I don't even want to hear what you have to say. Right? Just kind of being this whiny, bickery little child. And so this is the idea. Okay, so this is just meant to immerse us in the scene. So as we go through some of the questions, you guys know where you're at. And to be clear, um, if you're trying to figure out who do I identify with, just know you're not Jesus, right? So if you're like, hey, I want to step in the story, you're one of the foolish apostles. So just to put that out there, Probably Peter, because um, that's just mostly who we are. Okay, so um, that's the idea. That's a picture of what's going on this table. Verse 25. And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So in other words, when you go to dinner, if you're just thinking, about, listen, don't think holy right now, think just normal, okay? So when you go to dinner, Who's like at greater honor? Is it the waiter or is it the person being waited upon? It's the person being waited upon, right? Like, just, that just makes sense. So Jesus is saying, like, who, who gets greater honor here? The person who gets to lay down and have people serve them or the other way around? He's like, no, no, but here, I'm about to turn this thing upside down. Like, like, th this is the way the world does things. I'm about to flip it upside down. So let's, let's look at that a little bit. Jesus sets up two camps. You have Gentile leadership. When we say Gentile, non-Jewish leadership. If we bring it into today's context, we would say leadership done the world's way. 
okay? Leadership done the Western cultural way. Leadership done the American way. Like that, that would be this camp. And then he sets up this other camp that is the Jesus way, the kingdom way, the way of the Bible would be the present day context, okay? So um, help me out. The Gentile leaders, how are they described as being? And it's right there. Just look down the text. Feel free to take some liberties. What do we think about them? What can we learn about them from the text? Who are Gentile leadership? What's that? Right, so okay, that's good. So they're not Jews, so they don't have a context for the law of God. They're not of the people of God, so they're, they're kind of outside that context. So they're, they're Romans especially, so there's an occupying force reality to being Roman leadership of oppression and some other things that's probably all in view there as well. What else? You can do it. Perfect, yeah, Awesome. They're just really controlling, right? Like you get this picture, they're, they're lording their authority over them, right? Have you guys ever had a boss, right, or a coach or something like that where like there was just a difference in the way that they led? Like even in sports, there's this idea you can be a player's coach, right? And a player's coach means like, well, the players like them. Uh, the opposite to a player's coach is, I can't remember, what's that, what's that one? Anybody? The non-players coach? I know there's another name for it. I'm just escaping me. But it's essentially, no, they, they get power or they use their power and authority to like to say, no, you have to do this. So there's not this like desirous response, I'd like to follow you. It's you make me follow you and so I do. And so it's just this kind of coercion. There's a harshness to it. There's a weight to it. One other thing that I think stands out. What else is in there? That, there's a B word that they're called. Benefactors. Good. Way to not slip into something inappropriate. And so uh, they're benefactors. Now, this is a really interesting terminology, even as you go back to the ancient Greek here. They're benefactors, which is an interesting title to give to leaders in the view of how Jesus is calling us to be leaders. Because he's saying, listen, the way that these guys lead, they're the beneficiary. Like, they're the ones that get all of the self-promotion. They get all the gain and all the plus and all the positive of people serving them. The people that serve them view them as benefactors. In the kingdom, though, leaders are seen as the benevolent. You see the difference? See, see, you see, in the world's eyes, in the world's cultures, it's, no, they will benefit because they make me do stuff. In the kingdom, it's, no, 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 they are benevolent in the way that they lead. The contrast exists. So let's do some other ones. What, uh, in the kingdom leaders now, what do we see from verse 27, uh, sorry, right, 26 and 27, what do we learn about kingdom leaders? I know it's a small crowd. Y'all can do it, though. Come on. Like, they serve, right? It's just as straightforward as it can be. Jesus, Jesus, again, flipping this whole idea on its head. Tom Schrader, he's the former lead pastor of Redemption Gilbert. We've been quoting him a bunch. He passed away about five weeks ago. Um, dear friend of ours. He's got two great, great quotes on servant leadership that are really important. The first one is, everyone talks about servant leadership, but no one does it. Right? Like it's the buzz terminology. It's like, hey, you want to be a good leader, you got to be a servant leader. It's like, all right, yeah, and everybody loves that. His other quote is, everybody loves talking about being a servant, but, um, but only until people begin to treat you like one. Okay? Like we're all about it. Like this sounds good. No, servant leadership, that's kind of buzzy. That's sexy right now in the leadership world. But then when people start saying and treating you like one, they're like, ah, never mind. Right? Because it's hard and it's difficult and it leads you to... Self-death every day and the cross, if you will. So, so what Jesus is saying, he's like, listen, 
we're going to flip this whole kingdom ethic on its head. The way the world does stuff, we don't do stuff that way. And the fear is, the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves in the church, if I'm honest with myself, I buy into a cultural ethic of leadership far too often that I need to be pulled out of by the gospel. See, I, I buy into this, no, I, I need to climb the ladder. I need to prove myself. I need to insert whatever thing you got. I need to have people serve me because that's like, that's the pinnacle of life. There's even this, this great quote by um, Elizabeth O'Connor, and she's talking about the American dream. She says this about the American dream. She says, the American dream is work as hard as you can so you don't have to serve anymore, right? Like, like build, accumulate, engage, like lead in such a way, live in such a way where you finally get to this place in life where people just serve you. You don't have to serve anyone else. You run your own life. The way of the kingdom, the way of Christ, she says, is rather to work continuously and work as hard as you can so you can intentionally put yourselves in places of service. And hear me. Those are very different. That doesn't take like a ton of, like they're very opposite. They're diametrically opposed to one another. And so you cannot exist in both at the same time. And church, we have to begin to answer the question, what type of leaders, what type of servants, what type of people, not are we just called to be, but that we're actually going to live into. Because we try and dabble, like we try and adopt ways of the world as if it is cohesive with the way of the kingdom. And it's just not. It's just not. Jesus, hear me. And it's not even, he's not even turning it on its head because here's the pitfall with this type, with with what we're hearing. And I've been in the church for a while now. And hear me, I I got saved in college, became a Christian in college. And there was like this, this crazy funk I went through about a year into my faith where I just like, I, I cut it all out. I was like, I'm not doing church anymore. I'm not reading my Bible anymore. I don't want to be around Christians. And the whole driving force behind that was, I think I just did this because this is the next thing I could succeed in, right? Like I thought I could be good at Christianity because my whole life through high school and all into college, played tons of sports, did all that stuff, went and played soccer at San Diego State, and then I wasn't that good at San Diego State level, and so I got jealous, and I got frustrated, and I quit. And so what I began to search for was like in the midst of all this transition, Christianity seemed to be, to be ah, I could be good at this. Like I could prove to people that I'm somebody in this space. And hear me, that's almost worse than what Jesus is warning us of here is when you begin to use Christianity, you begin to use the church, you begin to use influence in this space, in God's kingdom, for your own glory and gain, that is not okay. And honestly, as we look across the cultural landscape of our nation right now, the Lord is setting those people down. Okay? The, the, the kind of the celebrity, pastoral, mega culture. And hear me, it's not that that's all bad. There's some beautiful parts to some of that, like influence that's happening. So hear me, it's not like all bad, but man, there is stuff in the heart. There's corruption in the midst of that. And God's starting to be like, that's enough. And you're getting man after man, woman after woman, these leaders that are just being like, hey, you, all this stuff's blowing up right now, okay? Because this stuff's just evil. If you use the church for your gain, okay? 
Now, the tendency and the pitfall could be if you hear the words of Christ this morning that says, no, 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 the way that you move up the ladder now is service. That's not what he's saying. It's not, hey, you want to gain influence in the church? Be a better servant. No, no, no. He's saying, dude, there's no more stinking ladder. Right? Like he's taken away the ladder and saying, listen, you know when you tried to do a ladder? It was in Genesis chapter 9 called the Tower of Babel, and I knocked that sucker down. He, like this, I'm going to prove to people, I'm going to prove to God we're as good as you. That's foolish. That's sinful. And so God does not like that. The ladder's gone. And so now what we've done is our culture would say, you know, there's, there's rungs that you work your way up to, Okay. Right? There's rungs. And so what we've done is we've brought that into the church and say, okay, well, yeah, God is up there, but there is this tiered system that if you work your way up and the way in now is servanthood, that's a terrible system. God's saying, no, no, no. Jesus right here, look, there's no more ladder, fellas. You guys are having this debate right now about who's greatest. You've missed the point. It's not a question of methodology. It's a question of identity. It's not what do you do, it's who are you. And the way of God, the way of the kingdom is not God and then other people. It's God and people. Right? There's a tier, and it's God, Father, Son, Spirit, and then humans. Right? Like that, that is the discrepancy. And there's no ladder that gets us between that that is not the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? So this is the pitfall that we need to be aware of, because it is rampant, and I tell you, it is intoxicating. You get a little sniff of power, a little sniff of influence, and man, I tell you, Satan will run with that thing. So instead, we try and see and study Jesus and what he does in this, because he's the best, okay? To illustrate this point further, let's just think about our culture and who we herald, Okay? So just uh, as you watch, if anyone watches baseball, which I think there's like no one that still does that, but just in case, okay, there's a guy named Mike Trout. Uh, yeah? Okay. Uh, outfielder for the Anaheim Angels. Are they the Los Angeles Angels? And I think they'll keep going back and forth. Anyway, um, that dude just signed a 13-year, $430 million contract. It's the largest contract in the history of sports by over $100 million, Okay. So this dude's crushing it, okay? And he's, he seems like a decent dude. I don't know if he's $430 million decent, but he's a decent dude. And so um, now in the world's eyes, like, again, don't be too holy here. Who do we give more honor to, Mike Trout or the Bat Boy, right? Go ahead. Mike Trout, right? I mean, it's just obvious. Like, so we do this. Like, we, we naturally then buy into that system. Let's go on. Uh, it may be, maybe drama and acting is your thing. So Meryl Streep, right, who greatest actor, actresses of all time in the actressing, actoring world. Um, her versus the key grip, which still I have no idea what the heck a key grip is, but I see it in the credits. Like, who gets more honor? Meryl Streep, right? Now, here, we do this in the church. Who gets the most honor in the church? And there's usually a couple in there. We've talked about it here before, but it's generally what? The overseas missionary tends to just be the heralded, stud, all-star, king, queen of our faith. Oh my gosh, you went, you went all the way to Thailand and you hung out on a beach and went shopping at a bazaar, but you also served in an orphanage for six days. Dang! Not all mission, not all short-term stuff is that, but it is that often, Right? You, you, you went and lived in Morocco. You went, and so hear me, that's just great. 
Sometimes. Sometimes we're terrible at it, and we just impose ourselves, and we should not do that either. But that's a whole other sermon. Okay, so um, it's not like we don't like the overseas missionary. We support overseas missionaries here. Like, if you give here, you support a ton of overseas missionaries. You're planting churches all over the world. That sounds great. We love that. They're not better than the greeter. They're just not. But we buy into the world system that shows hierarchy and status and power and influence are important. And so we say, yeah, no, that person, let's herald them. Let's speak about them. Let's celebrate them. Okay, listen, hear me. It's weird for me to say, but we do it with the pastor role too. Like, it's funny, at the morning service, I said, who's more important, the pastor or the greeter? And people are like, the greeter. And I was like, okay. Uh, which is just true. Thank you very much. But, um, but we do that, like, so, and, and, and hopefully not here, but I don't know. But, I mean, like, you look at the church landscape, it's like, well, the pastor is just, uh, man, right? He deserves the honor. He's the pastor. It's like, no, it's a job. It's a vocation. No, is there rules, or sorry, is there roles, and is there calling in the midst of that? Do I think the scriptures point to a greater accountability that's involved with me being able to go to Jesus and be able to say, yeah, actually, man, Faith and Zach, this is kind of what I know about them. I think they love Jesus, and da 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 Like, that's going to be part of my future with the Lord, right? Um, but I'm not better. But we do that in the church, and it's just, and here's what it does, is it then neuters the power of the church from top to bottom. Because all of a sudden, it then absolves the rest of you from having to live to by the same commands that we're all called to, which is daily die to self for the sake of the other. It, it, it absolves, because then you can say, well, no, they're the most important, so they can just, they'll do all the work, and then we'll just kind of sit back here. And then hear me on the other end, then you got these leaders that then they take all that on, they think they're amazing, and then they go and just jack it all up because they're not meant to bear that burden either. Okay, so hear me. I'm just trying to say all of this is a giant jumbled mess, and this is why when Jesus comes in, he's like, he, I, I can just sense the frustration. This is, hear me, this is mere hours before he's about to go to the cross to die for the sins of mankind. He's been telling it and prophesying, and he's saying, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. He's now like, dude, my hour's here. Like, I'm about to die for this, and you guys are still bickering about the same stuff we've been talking about for three years. He's like, get rid of the system. It's jacked up, it's messed up, it's all wrong. And so church, hear me, we're 2,000 years later, and I still don't think we've figured it out. And, and, and I don't know if we ever will, right? There's always going to be some, some bugaboos. That's not the right word. I don't know what it is, but there's going to be some problems in the church. Like, we're never going to be perfect. But in the midst of that, we need to have ears enough to hear and listen and say, yeah, this stuff isn't right. There's a way we're supposed to live that moves downward. Hear me, not upward. The world's saying, move yourself upward, do better. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with a promotion. There's nothing wrong with more influence. But internally, in your heart, you ain't going like this. You're supposed to go downward. We die to self. This is not self-hatred. This is a firm belief in the calling and the mission of God that we do that because we're so secure in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So uh, let's keep going. Now, um, verse, or we're going to switch over to John 13, our second text, and I'll move a little bit quicker here to make sure we get through. John 13, 3 through 5. This is Jesus living out the ethic of the kingdom that he just shared. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel tied around his waist, then poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. For, for brevity's sake, um, just take a quick peek again at 3 through 5. And do you notice the detail that he gets into here? Okay, especially starting in verse 4 and 5. John is writing this story, hear me, 30 to 50 years after this has happened. Remember where John's seated, right? John's seated in a place of honor at the table. So he's there 30 to 50 years later, okay? He's now going to write about this scene. Now, there's maybe three of us in the room, four of us in the room that are like, can remember 30 years ago, Okay? But do your best. So if you're, if you're like pre-30, go back to four and see if you can remember anything about your life. This is John, an older man now, writing this about this scene. And here's what he says. He says, I remember Jesus rising from the floor, laying aside his garments, grabbing a towel, tying it around his waist. I remember he poured water into a basin. Then he washed the feet, and then he wiped them with a towel. Now, here's what I find very amazing about that passage and him doing this is like the only real consequential moment in all of that is that he washed their feet. Like, I don't, like, why would we care that he took the towel? Why do we care that he got up from the floor? Obviously, he got up from the floor. He didn't do it seated there. Like, obviously, he needed a towel. Obviously, he probably, like, why the detail? And you just begin to step into this moment that I hope would be the way I view my Savior as well, where I would look 40 years from now back on a moment of what Christ had done in my life and I would just be so enamored with it that I would tell every detail. Like just to step into John's shoes for a moment that 40 years later, he doesn't, if you read the book of John, like he's a 35,000 foot flyer. Like he's telling these, these stories from a bigger picture level, trying to connect them to the Greeks with how the gospel communicates in a pagan world. And in this moment though, he slows down enough to tell us some of those inconsequential details in all of the gospel. Because I think he was so transformed by this moment. That when he began to think back, he's like, oh my gosh, my... My Savior, Jesus. And now remember, this is now post the resurrection, 40 years later. So in the moment, he might have been tied up with the rest of the guys thinking, well, Jesus is about to go and take this whole ship over, right? Like, we're going to be captains and kings, and so we're doing it. But now he's like, no, my Savior, hours from then, died and rose. Like, this was, this was hours, and he was choosing in his last moments, the creator of the world, to be one who comes to the floor and washes feet. Let me ask you this question. Um, at the table, and this one everyone should get. Like, this is the easiest question you'll get all day. But at the table, who truly is the greatest? Jesus, right? And that's just, just always say that as an answer. If you're anywhere, it's probably Jesus. Okay, so Jesus. Now, why? And this one's really obvious, too. Don't go too deep with it. Why? Because he's perfect. And also, capital G, what he's, he's God, like, okay, you're sitting down with your buddies. There's 13 of you. One of you is God, okay? Like, he's the best. Like, it's, you don't got to think about it. Like, oh, you're God? Okay, yeah, then you win. God got up off the floor. 
God took off his outer garments. God grabbed a towel. Okay? God wrapped this towel around his waist. God, hear me, God who created the human beings, who thought up and envisioned humans. God got on the floor, God filled a basin of water, and God had one by one these men that were being as foolish as you can be, come and let me wash your feet. Now hear me, if you don't know the context of foot washing, like if you wash someone's feet now, that's service, because feet, again, pretty gross, okay? Back then, look, there's, it's not paved road. You, you can picture it, right? So you got mud. Listen, you have excrement and waste, okay? You have blood, probably, right? These guys are, literally, they just walked to Jerusalem, okay? And so oh, feet would have been disgusting. You had God get on the floor and do something that even the lowest seen people in society that day would not have to do. Like if you look at their culture, they had slaves in that culture as well, right? Even the slaves in the Roman Empire would not have to do this. Like it was, it was like, nah, like we're gonna make you do all this crazy oppressive stuff, but we're not gonna make you wash feet. That's too far. God filled a basin, got down on the floor below his disciples and said, give me your feet. I think as a message to each and every one of us hearing 2,000 years later that there is absolutely nothing that could be part of you, your life, your past, present, future that would be too unclean for Jesus to wash away. You just get this imagery as, as he washes and he cleanses as a foreshadow to what's about to happen mere hours later when he would be on a cross, his blood would be shed that would cover the multitude of sins you, I, and everyone in this world has ever committed. That we would be cleansed and clean before him. God did that in Jesus. I mean, just to stare at him and be like, that is just, it just makes no sense. This is not the way you do it. Like Jesus, again, everybody loves the idea of being a servant until you're treated like one. Jesus came into this earth and from day one was treated like a servant when he was the king. And every day he resolved to move into love and choose love and choose service and choose uplifting the broken, the outsider, and the hurting at much expense to himself. And church, now he asks us to do the same. Because that whole first part, that wasn't, hey, look what I'm getting ready to do. It was, I'm getting ready to do this, and now I'm asking you to live out this kingdom ethic every day for the rest of your life. This is what we do. It's wild. Now, um, one more question in this space, in this area right here. Who, of the 12 apostles, who is it that's most surprising that Jesus would be kneeling down before to wash his feet. Judas. Hear me, we, we tend to do okay in loving those closest to us. Okay, not even great. Like if I'm honest, I, I, I fail my kids and I fail my wife. I fail my closest friends and I fail my staff. I fail people all the time. Okay? Like I, I just don't do it right all the time. Now, 
to ask then, hey, how are you going to go and serve the one that hates you and is ready to betray you and give you over to the people who will slaughter you? You see, what he, like he, God gets down on the floor and washes the feet of the man that is about to turn him over for 30 measly pieces of silver. He's about to wash the feet of the man that delivers him unto the most brutal and excruciating death the world has ever known. And he gets a, and it's not like he doesn't know. Literally, this is minutes before he calls Judas out in front of the whole group and says, you're the guy that's about to do this. So it's not like Jesus didn't know. We struggle loving each other. The Bible says you got to love your enemy. The people that hate you, that despise you, the ones that want the worst for you, you know what you do? You get down on your knees and you serve them. The outsider that you disagree with, you get down and you serve them. The ones where you think their past is too dirty to you, you get down on the floor and you serve them. In our climate, the people on the other side of whatever aisle you land on, you get down and you serve them. There, there's no like, there's no getting around it. There's no subverting it. If you're the church, if I'm the church, this is how we're supposed to live. Service. Descending. Dying to self. If the Savior of the world, who happens to be the one who created you and I, the one that, hear me, when we start talking hierarchy again, the only one that actually belongs up here, he intentionally came down here. And so we're called to do the same. Now hear me, I know logically, you guys are all smart people, that makes sense. Like just, okay, yeah, I can see why you would say that. Living it out is difficult, I get that. Daily being pressed upon especially in the spaces of our world where you have been... Listen, it's, it's not just that, right? Like, and Jesus understands this, but he also understands the difficulty and you've been oppressed or you've been hurt or you've been slandered or you've been sinned against. And to navigate that space of what does it mean for me to lower myself in that place, how could you possibly do that? And hear me, it's not easy, but I think we get an answer here. And it's in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God. So this is the context for how God, in Jesus, would lower himself to wash the feet of even his enemy. There's four things. One, knowing his Father in heaven. He knew his Father. He knew God. As a byproduct then, he knew who he was because he knew who his father was. Okay. Three, he knew where his citizenship was, so he knew what ethics, okay, and what story drove his life. And then lastly, he knew what God had given him. And so he knew he was called the steward, what God had given. Which leaves us with those same four questions. How, how could we possibly, even in the midst of, of sin and oppression in the midst of whatever we've experienced, how could we possibly? There's four questions. One, do you know the Father? Like, do, do you know God? It, it's, listen, all, it starts with the gospel. This isn't 
work harder, do better, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and just serve them already because that's what you're supposed to do. That crap doesn't work for longer than a day. Okay? It's, God, this is on my front doorstep. Do I know you? And if I know you, what do I believe about who I am? Does, does, does me being the son or daughter of, of the heavenly father, does that truly identify who I am? Do I believe that? Do you believe that? That's who you are in him. Do you know the father? Do you know who you are? Do you know where your citizenship is? Church, hear me. And, I, and I, I'm talking a lot of ways right now, like most of us, I think, in the room are Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're something like, well, that's just not me. Man, first of all, thanks for coming to church. I know this can be weird. I remember setting foot in a church for the first time way back when, and I remember one of the first things I did is I walked in, and they were playing this song called, uh, it was like, I thank you for the blood, and I didn't know what the heck that meant. And so they're literally, I thank you for the blood, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'll see you. Uh, so I, thanks for being here and being part of this. Um, and, and I would love if you're like, I don't know how to answer any of these questions. Come and talk to me. And that's true for the Christian as well. If you're like, I, I don't know how I'd answer these. Man, come and talk. Like, let's, let's learn together. Let's, like, be together. Let's be in proximity to know how, how do we answer these questions. So do you know the Father? Do you know who you are? Do you know where you're sitting at church? Do you know what defines your life? Are you being shaped by consumerism, a story that is... Let's be honest, it is a powerful story in our world that's telling you that you need more stuff and you need more people and you need more things in order to be happy and satisfied, okay? Is it a story of, uh, of success and status that is achieved through whatever means possible, right? Is it a, ah, there is, like whatever that story is, which one defines which one you believe in and gets to dictate how you live your life? Because if it's the biblical story, if it's that worldview, if we believe this to be true, there's a certain set of ethics then that we adopt and say, this is how I'm going to live my life. Because this is what I believe to be true. We'll fail at it. We'll totally blow it. But then we'll just try to do it better the next time. Okay? And then that last question of like, what's God given you then? And, and I mean that in all, like from your gifting to your talents of hear me, and the church doesn't always do a great job at this, that you all have and are absolutely necessary for the flourishing of our communities and for our churches. What has God put in you, in your mind, in your hearts, in your abilities and all that kind of stuff to serve the community, to bless our city, to bless those around you, all that kind of stuff. Like, what's he giving you? And then, like, there's this practical, as like, what, like, tangible things do you have that you can use to care for other people around you? But it starts with the gospel. That service stuff, the white knuckling to be a better servant, that's foolish. Don't do that. Dwell on the gospel. Who are you? And do you know the Father? And then move on from there. Um, I land with this quote, and we'll be done. He says this, uh, Paul Miller, who's the author of Love Walked Among Us, inspiration for this series. And we read this the very first week of this series. I think it was 11 weeks ago. But I love this quote. It says, um, the person of Jesus is low, slow, and hidden. Like the seeds in Jesus' kingdom parables, the person of Jesus only comes alive, hear me, as you love. 
He will remain completely opaque to you unless you begin foot washing. It is a knowledge that only comes from walking in his shoes as you enter the same downward path of his life. You will not get this knowledge by having me explain it to you. You enter into it by entering into it. So in other words, man, we could get like the greatest, I'm sure, I know there's better preachers, uh, and there's maybe some that you just like, man, if this person was here, this would be awesome, all that kind of stuff, right? Whoever that is for you, if they were preaching this to you, it wouldn't be enough. You wouldn't understand the love of Jesus, well, the depths of the love of Jesus until church we begin to enter into it. Until we serve and we wash the feet. And the prereq to that is the gospel. And spending time this week dwelling on the gospel. And so my ask of you guys' application this week is pretty simple, Okay? It's to ask those four questions to yourself each morning. And it's got to be long. You don't got to journal it. I, like, I love that people journal. I hate it. But if it's you, God bless you, right? Um, for me, it's just like, hey, I'll maybe do a couple notes on my phone, something like that. But ask these four questions every morning. And we're going to put them out on social media. We'll, we'll send it out to you guys so you have them. But again, do you know the Father? Do you know who you are? Do you know where your citizenship is and what has he given you? We start with the gospel and we begin to move outward. We just ask these questions every day because the reality is, like you, I'm assuming, I just forget all the time. Nice. I love it. That's a, that's a sweet bottle. Um, if you find it, you keep it. That's the way it works here. Just FYI. Just kidding. Um, ask those four questions because here, we need the gospel on our minds and on our hearts all the time. Right? Like it's just too easy to forget. We forget who we are. We start buying into false stories. And so ask those questions every day, and we'll see where we land. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have cleansed us and washed us white as snow. God, that we are free. God, that we are cleansed, that we are forgiven. God, I want to pray for any who are here, again, that are just visiting. And God, thanks for drawing them here. And, and I, just, I pray they'd know the depths of your love and what you've done. We thank you for this story and all the stories. God, of you just showing how, man, like God in the flesh got down and served the enemy. And Lord, that we can do that as we just, man, as we experience you and know you and know who we are. God, that we're loved and we're forgiven that we're perfect in your eyes. All, all these things, all this stuff, Holy Spirit, I know I'll forget, we'll all forget, and so we're asking you to counsel and convict us this week. That, Lord, it would, scriptures and this story and, and the things that, the, that Christ you've done in our lives would just constantly uh, revisit us, that we'd walk faithful to the calling you've given us. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.